you have no option but to use livestock True. if you want to reverse verbal yeah. desertification and address climate change. Now, the second thing we discovered was the cause of climate change. And we've been blaming it on livestock, on fossil fuels mostly. Now, if you think about it, and I spoke about this at COP26, uh, almost every scientist now has acknowledged that humans are causing this accelerated uh, change and, in the climate. Now, if that is true and science is logical, if we are causing it, then fossil fuels aren't and livestock aren't. You cannot have two causes of a problem. Right. You can only have one. Right. And so if we are causing it, then it means the way in which we are managing livestock and fossil fuels is causing climate change. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, you can't be involved in conversations on the future of agriculture, let alone the future of the world, without coming across the name Alan Savory. And Alan's a founder of the Savory Institute, and he's a renowned ecologist and pioneer in holistic land management. Uh, his work is focused on regenerating degraded landscapes through innovative practices that integrate livestock grazing with sustainable land stewardship. And his holistic approach aims to restore ecosystems, combat desertification, and address global challenges related to food production and climate change. And today, I'm so happy to welcome Alan Savory. We're going to explore those groundbreaking contributions to sustainable agriculture and environmental conservation and, and also attend to some discussions on global policies, that uh, national and global policies that could be more helpful. Alan, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. I, I, I've been so in awe of what you've done. You've had you're you're such an incredible leader, and I have not had an opportunity to visit with you before today's podcast personally. But I keep running into disciples of yours all over the place, and I've had many guests on my podcast in the past that said that they had a program going. They had the Savory Hub started. They had. A, a grazing program that was established. And they were people that were turned on and excited because they were exposed to, to your vision and to how you've inspired them. And Alan, it can't get much better than that. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's, it's good to hear. Uh, you know, we have our ups and downs and a lot of people condemn me. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about that too because I've seen some of those people condemning you, and and um, I've seen after the last COP there were some people that were picking on um, your defending livestock grazing and the role that livestock grazing can play, and and um, and I saw it and I thought, gee, I should wade in here because why are they picking on him? I didn't know you then at that time, but I thought. This I can't believe some of these organizations feel that it's important for them to take shots at what you've been proposing when I find it so easy to believe what you've been proposing on the importance of livestock and grazing and a different way of looking at the world. So I guess you must have had to develop a tough skin uh, or a thick skin, Alan, to, to have people take shots at you for doing what you think is right. Yeah, my skin is not thick. <laughs> it, it hurts. Uh, but it's the, what goes with the job. Uh, nobody warned me as a, a budding young scientist in my 18, 19, 20, uh, those years, that the greatest crime you can commit is to actually discover something truly new. Your life becomes, you're, you're persecuted for life. Well, uh, it's, it's normal. It's what's happened to me is absolutely normal. Nobody's being bad. And you said it just now. You said organizations attacking me. Individuals don't. Uh, and this is part of what, what is the, the problem. 
you mentioned policies. All policies are developed by organizations, mm -hmm. never by individuals at government level. And organizations are not humans. Yeah. They're formed by humans, but they don't behave like a human. So that might come out in, in our discussion about our policy. But going back to, to the start of it, yes, you tied me to livestock and land because that's where the what I'll call the breakthrough began. Uh, I'll use the word we because thousands of people were involved in discovering what I promote. Uh, nobody discovers something on their own. Uh, it was just a focal point, the catalyst or whatever, or the one person over more than 60 years that was absolutely determined to solve the problem and would not give up no matter what the cost. And so I held things together. But many, many people have contributed. Now, this began uh, when I was a 20-year-old young uh, ecologist, a new science in those days, and I was in charge of vast areas of Africa, wild Africa, where we were developing future national parks, and some of those are national parks today. And what I observed was appalling loss of biodiversity occurring, and we couldn't blame fossil fuels, colonialism, corporations, politics, uh, mm -hmm. slavery, and uh, all, all the things that people blame. We couldn't blame livestock, but it was occurring. And I had the world's, probably one of the world's top ecologists stay with me for six weeks, day after day, taking him, showing him this stuff. And as I was the man in charge and didn't know what to do, I was seeking advice from him, and I found he had no idea what to do. So really that changed my career from wanting to be a researcher, study elephants, etc., to trying to solve that problem. Why were we losing biodiversity, seeing soil erosion, non-effective rainfall, desertification occurring under our professional management when we had nothing else we could possibly attribute it to? And that's not a popular thing to do. So after seven years... Uh, in government service, I, I found for me it was impossible to do honest science in an institution. So I became an independent scientist to keep the work going, uh, determined to find an answer, but having no idea how to fund it or where I was going or anything. So it's been a long uh, story from there. Now, at, in the beginning, uh, I worked very closely with two Americans, uh, professors, uh, Dr. Mosman, Dr. Dasman, and they had come over to Africa as Fulbright scholars, and in Rhodesia, I met up with them, and I had come to the conclusion about two years before that we had to remove livestock, and if we could just manage the, the wildlife, what people are calling rewilding today, we could stop the land degradation, if we could manage it, which the institutions were not doing properly. So we developed between us, I found they had come up with the same idea. So we just teamed up and they had most of the knowledge. I didn't have much. I was young, they were very experienced, but uh, I was in a very senior position for my age and I was able to unblock the bureaucratic blockages because in our country, we were extremely petty, and how people were referring to them as interfering yanks. What the hell did they know about Africa? And I kept saying, no, they know far more than we know, and we need to work with them. So I really unblocked the bureaucratic blockages, and uh, we, between the three of us, we got game ranching going. That's a multi-billion dollar industry today, but we pioneered it, the, the three of us. Now, I then found we were wrong. The land kept deteriorating, even though we could increase wildlife populations, etc. And then in the 1960s, desperate for solutions, uh, totally condemning livestock as all humans have for 10,000 years, blaming them for desertification. Um, a South African botanist who was studying the advance of the Karoo Desert and mapping it 
he wrote an article, uh, not published in a scientific journal because they wouldn't have published it, uh, but in the Farmers Weekly, saying South Africa was over, uh, understocked and overgrazed. Now, that was new thinking. So, poor as I was, I traveled down to the Cape and visited him, and I couldn't even afford a jersey. It was winter, and I stepped in my vehicle, and uh, John Acox had come up with the idea that livestock were selectively grazing, and if he could force them to graze everything all at once, then every plant would recover equally, and you wouldn't knock out one species after another. I could see there were flaws in that reasoning, but I was there to learn, so I just kept quiet and, and listened to him, and then asked him if I could see a farm which he was working with, and he introduced me to a farming couple, Len and Denise Howell. And I went and stayed with them, and <laughs> they lent me a warm jacket. Anyway, we went out, and it had been snowing, and I got out of the vehicle to open a gate, and there was, over in the corner, I saw where a sheep had crowded in the, to get out of a snowstorm, put their backs to the storm. And I got excited and went over there because I found what I was looking for, healthy grassland with covered soil, etc., in this small spot. And I was very excited about it. And they came over and asked what I was excited about. And I showed them. And at that point, it was an aha moment. I realized, oh, my God, for 10,000 years, we've been blaming sheep. They could solve this problem. So that was a big on. So I independently at that point, probably the only person in the world who's realized ever that sheep could heal deserts instead of forming them. Uh, but we didn't know how, because every way we'd ever run livestock had led to biodiversity loss and desertification in the low rainfall, seasonal rainfall environments, which is most of the world's land. Uh, so now I had this dilemma. The work we were doing with rewilding was leading to desertification, despite encouraging superficial results. I realized we had to use livestock. Nobody in the world knew how to do it. Yeah. And having no resources, uh, what I did was I, I said, well, let me look at other professions. And I looked at businesses and everything to see if anybody had uh, dealt with anything like this uh, planning. And uh, André Varzan, uh, a French pasture scientist, I found uh, his work, so I read all his work, and I found that he had concluded, after studying 200 years of rotational grazing in Europe on pastures, that it led to biodiversity loss. But it didn't lead to desertification in those more humid environments. So I realized, okay, he's got part of the problem because he had discovered for the first time that overgrazing, which scientists blame for causing desertification, they attribute to animal numbers. So there are thousands of scientific dissertations, uh, and I've never been able to find a single one that even defined overgrazing. The reason they never defined it was they knew what it was, too many animals. And you can read that in ancient texts. So Rosanna had discovered that wasn't true that scientifically, uh, the overgrazing of a plant has got nothing to do with animal numbers. It's got everything to do with the severity of the bite, the duration of the grazing, and if the animals move, the period before they come back. So it's a time and animal behavior problem, not an animal numbers problem. So he'd given me part of the clue to look for, and then he had tried to solve it with a very simple planning process and got amazing results. And those are published in five languages in his books, but they were ignored by range scientists because that's not their field. And uh, so anyway, I realized that he'd probably solved this. So I started working with ranchers in my own country, admitting I'd been wrong. I'd screwed up in condemning their livestock and we got working together. Now, I said, well, let's use Wazan's planning process and see what happens. So we did that, and uh, we fell on our faces. We came in stuck. Uh, and so at that point, I realized, all right, Wazan is not wrong. 
It's just that pastures in a humid environment are simpler than ranges, large areas of land in, say, Africa or America or Australia or anywhere uh, with 200 millimeters of rain, three, 400 millimeters of rain, uh, eight, six, eight months or more of no rain, uh, elephants, kudu, giraffe, zebra, all the animals on them. These are different. They're more complicated. So what I did then was say, okay, he's right. Planning process is needed. He's right. Animal numbers are not the problem. Now, how do we do this? And so at that point, I looked at uh, other professions, including businesses, etc., that had planned very complicated situations. And the most of them were in business, business colleges, universities, etc., and there are books full of it. And I found those were too complicated for ordinary lay people, pastoralists, farmers, ranchers, needed too much academic training. And then I looked at the military, because I was in the army fighting a, a long civil war at the same time. And I looked at our training, which was had flowed down from Sandhurst Military Academy in Britain. Rhodesia was part of the British Army at one stage. And, um, and so as an army officer, how were we trained to plan in immediate battlefield situations, which are ever-changing, extremely complicated, and men are tired, they've got to be trained fast in times of war. And I just took a thousand years of their experience and said, now look, they've solved this problem, but only for battles which are fought for hours or an hour or days or weeks. But pastoralists, farmers, ranchers, and if we're going to reverse desertification globally, we've got a plan for years, a year at a time, eight months at a time, whatever, long periods. So how on earth can we do that? And that became easy by just putting it on a chart because you can put months across the top of a chart and area of lands, divisions of land down the left. And so I, I simply, that's why I always credit Sandhurst Military Academy with uh, the holistic plan raising as it is today. So I adopted their technique, cribbed it, got ranchers to do it. I laid out, developed the forms needed, and that worked immediately. And listen carefully, I'm not exaggerating. I promise you, we have never, ever had a single failure in now over 50 years. But so there's a thousand years of experience behind it. We have had thousands of people fail to do it, convert it to a rotational system, and say, Savory's wrong, it doesn't work. He's a charlatan. Boy, we need to keep coming back to that because we're going to bring it up to date with some people that have made the same comment, uh, still making that, having given up on it. But let me let me pause this far in the story. A couple of things. One, from a grazing standpoint, uh, as you know, through the West and the plains of the United States, we had 65 million buffalo that were roaming across that, that area. And in the time when the buffalo herds were, were thick, the, there was a, Native Americans and the buffalo, there was a, a, a pretty good relationship. But you also had these wonderful grasslands that were uh, uh, across the areas of uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, eastern Colorado, part of Texas. And as long as they had 65 million buffalo going over that area, uh, those native grasslands were really impressive. But then when we came in and started tearing it all up, uh, it led to the Dust Bowl and fed on into, you know, the depression and the huge dust storms for what, what, 10, 15 years off and on. And it never has been quite the same. And I've I always wondered, you couldn't intensively manage the bison, the, the buffalo, and yet the impact that they were having on that that rangeland supposedly was was pretty incredible. And we came in and kind of screwed it up with our agriculture. Now now, now comment on that. I'm just getting in over my head, I'm sure. but Well, we, we all are to an extent. Uh, that was a remnant. Uh, let's, uh, let me comment briefly on it, and then let's go back to policy, because that's more important sure, sure, than sure. this. But the, that 65 million uh, bison 
those were a remnant. There used to be three species of bison. There used to be more than 80%, 80, over 80% of the genera, not species, were lost in North America, South mm. America even more, Australia the same, uh, after the arrival of early humans, uh, when they replaced the role of large animals that they killed off. Don't forget, humans were a not a predator. We were an omnivorous scavenger that had probably evolved in rocky seashores in the, the Cape area of Africa, spread around the world, and we stood upright, had an opposing thumb, uh, many features, but amongst our features was language. And once we'd got the use of fire, and then how to light fire, and language, we had the organizing ability that other hunting animals, like apes, uh, baboons that hunt, uh, don't have. They can't organize. They're very clumsy. So with organization, language, spear, and fire, uh, we were not a predator, and we learned that unlike pack-hunting predators that existed half a million years ago and from there on, um, we were not a, a predator, we were an omnivorous scavenger, and we could not isolate an animal and kill it uh, from a herd. Uh, we found it was easier with language, organization, and fire to kill the whole damned herd by driving them over a cliff, driving them into boggy ground. Uh, so you found not only had you got a new predator now that killed whole herds uh, when it wanted one animal, and there were killing sites in America of thousands of buffalo killed, very few eaten. In New Zealand, apparently killing sites with an estimated 90,000 mowers killed, very few eaten. So you had this new animal on the, on the place, and we were using fire, which exposes soil and is rapid oxidation. So really, what is climate change today began in the earliest stages when humans killed off most of the large animals and replaced their role with fire. Now, not only that this new predator was able to kill whole herds, but this predator was using fire, which had been natural prior to a human learning to light it. So you now had unnatural fires, and these changed the habitat, and everything is dependent on habitat. So you had habitat rapidly changing a new type of predator, and that's you see it around the world, vast loss of diversity of, of animals. So Native Americans, as we call them, the uh, people that were here uh, in the earliest days, uh, and their predecessors had killed off most of the animals, and America was already beginning to desertify areas of it. And if you read Lewis and Clark, there are many clues in there. Mm -hmm. And many people praise the tall grassland mm -hmm. that was in the prairies. That tall grassland was a danger. Mm -hmm. That tall grassland is extremely fibrous. We have that in Africa too, grass 15 feet high. It's not good. Even the elephants can't eat it. It's too much fiber. That is a symptom of too much fire. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we praise is actually a symptom of the change that was occurring. But let's leave that for a moment. Sure. Uh, but come back to the policy. We've mentioned the fact that livestock are essential. They're not optional. And I've been heavily criticized by academics all around the world and academic and organizations for being a scientist who says there's no option. There is no damn option. And not a single scientist has shown me an option or shown where I'm wrong in over 50 years. I think we need to start accepting that, that you cannot reverse desertification using fire because the rapid oxidation and desertification occurs because of slow oxidation in the absence of animals, as I explained in a TED talk at yeah. some length. Um, and you cannot do it with technology. Any technology even imaginable cannot replace gradual oxidation with rapid biological decay over billions of hectares, about two-thirds of the world every year. It's unimaginable. Now, scientists, I don't care how many Nobel Prizes they've got, have only got two options, fire or technology. The only other thing we've ever thought of is rewilding, and that's what Dasman and Mossman, myself, were working on, thinking that we had the answer to us in the 1950s. And we realized we were wrong. 
Um, so, and national parks and private game reserves, etc. Every one I've inspected and game ranches, the land is still deteriorating. So now, with that, if I can leave it aside for a moment, uh, what else was causing the problem? Fortunately for me, although it was a tragedy at the time, because of my opposition politically, militarily, to what was going on in the country, as well as my scientific position, um, I was forced into exile. And uh, I went and lived in the Cayman Islands. I couldn't go into Southern Africa. I was banned from setting foot on any university campus for over 20 years in the whole of Southern Africa. And I had whole governments trying to crush my thinking. And Americans had been watching it, and my work was being plagiarized in, in Texas by universities. And so I went and worked from the Caribbean into North and South America, where I could still try to keep the work going. Now, through some very wonderful, far-sighted bureaucrats in America, um, starting with uh, Bob Steger, Professor Steger at Angelo State University, and then uh, Ray Margot, uh, Don, uh, Don Sylvester in the Soil Conservation Service, between these three guys coming and talking to me about what I was doing, etc., and I'm cutting through a long story, it ended up with the American government uh, forming an interagency committee and commissioning me to put 2,000 American land managers, uh, uh, academics from the land-grant colleges, etc., through a week of training in what I was developing uh, over two years. Now, that was an incredible period. And no, no scientists ever had an opportunity like that as a young ecologist as I was to work with 2,000 scientists, wonderful people, open-minded, caring. Uh, our agencies and so on are full of some brilliant people, and I was working with them. Now, amongst them, we had a handful, uh, probably it amounted to 100 or two over the two years, that were bitterly, angrily offended, and they eventually managed to get all the training banned in the second Reagan administration. Uh, that was largely the work of Texas A&M University, more than any, the one that had started by, by the plagiarizer work. So anyway, that's uh, aside. We had this two-year period, and that's when I say we broke through. Because what was happening by that stage, uh, Roger, was that I had wonderful successes on many properties and five countries in Africa. Then when I was exiled, all of them slid backwards. Now, some of that I've got prior warning was impending. When I investigated that, it wasn't because of the planned grazing and the livestock. It was because of social issues, economic issues, that I had not taken into account. And I had made the farmers and ranchers consultant dependent. They were relying on me to make the decisions and when I was exiled and they had nobody to guide them, they slid backwards. Now, that made me realize, all right, we, we're not there. We haven't solved this problem yet. So when working with the 2000, we began to develop the holistic framework uh, with all those minds. And one of the things I did as we developed it, uh, training each group, working out what they understood, what they didn't understand, all of these people contributing, was I devoted an hour of every day over the two years to nothing but criticism. So an hour was devoted and everybody had to spend it trying to find a flaw in the logic or in the way we were using science because we were developing management, not research. This is a management problem. It's not a research. It's not a science problem. It's a management problem. So if in the management framework we were developing there was any science or use of science wrong, we had to identify it. That helped us identify quite a lot of things, and we ended up uh, being able to guarantee the results if people would just manage holistically, in effect. And we could analyze policies and do things that had never been possible before because we had a framework 
to do it. And it's a statement is published in our textbook in the first edition and still in the third edition, which I quoted and wrote down verbatim from one of those groups in training. Bear in mind, these are American government officials after analyzing hundreds of their own policies that they used to bring to the training. Mm -hmm. And they wrote, and I memorized it, they said, we now recognize that unsound resource management is universal in the United States. Mm. Now, the fact that professional people could do that after a week of training, looking at their own policies, that was incredible. That statement has never been corrected, never been challenged in 40 years now. Say it again. Re repeat that. Repeat that statement again. This sample of these American officials from all the land management agencies, soil conservation, BLM, BIA, U.S. Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, etc., and academics from the land-grant colleges, the universities, right? And a sample of them in the training said, we now recognize that unsound resource management is universal in the United States. Now, we see that every day. You see it with COVID. You see it with the war on weeds, the war on terror. It doesn't matter what you look at, the desertification of the United States. This is why you've got mounting anger at governments. It doesn't matter what governments in power, because governments form policies, and all of the policies are unsound when it comes to the environment. And not just this government, because when we repeated that in India, Pakistan, uh, Lesotho, Zimbabwe, we got the same results, smaller samples of professional people. So so that's now that gave us the second thing that we discovered. And I'm saying we, because so many of us were involved. And that's when, uh, as I say, training was banned and we were set back badly. Now, that second thing we discovered, bear in mind, the first is you have no option but to use livestock True. if you want to reverse verbal right. desertification and address climate change. Now, the second thing we discovered was the cause of climate change. And we've been blaming it on livestock, on fossil fuels mostly. Now, if you think about it, and I spoke about this at COP26, uh, almost every scientist now has acknowledged that humans are causing this accelerated uh, change and, in the climate. Now, if that is true and science is logical, if we are causing it, then fossil fuels aren't and livestock aren't. You cannot have two causes of a problem. Right. You only have one. Right. And so if we are causing it, then it means the way in which we are managing livestock and fossil fuels is causing climate change. Now, that's a very big thing. You're from blaming fossil fuels and blaming livestock. We need to focus on how we are managing them. Both. Then, you say both. You say both livestock and how we're managing fossil fuels. How you're managing all resources. Mm. But these include fossil fuels, energy, you know, livestock. Now, when you look at, uh, and this is what, as I say, I spoke briefly about at COP26, when you look at management, uh, every climate conference ends in chaos and right. no clear advice to world leaders. But you've got the public demanding that world leaders take action. Well, what action? You see, they're getting no clear guidance. So I appealed for us to give some clear guidance and, and um, work a way forward. So in that, I explained, if you're going to advise world leaders that management is the problem, then that becomes a very big issue because what the hell are you managing? Millions of things. And that we found in 1984 in that big group of us working is not true. Humans are only managing three things. We are producing millions of things every day. We're producing milk, grain, wheat, wine, music, cell phones, uh, bombs, planes, bridges, buildings, you name it. Humans produce millions of things or make millions of things every day. We don't manage them, we make them yeah. or produce them. And if you stop producing them, they stop. 
And everything we produce does what we intended to produce. It doesn't do hidden things. So then if that's not where the problem is, and that's where everybody's arguing in the region, ag movement, and uh, uh, COP and all these things, you'll find everybody's arguing for this way of producing beef or this way of producing mutton or wine or grain, whether it should be produced by corporations based on chemistry or whether it should be produced by farmers based on the biological sciences, as those of us in regenerative agricultural movement program. But that's all how you produce it. That's not going to solve the problem. So if you gave the issue to the regenerative agriculture movement 100% tomorrow and said you're totally in charge, develop the policy for American agriculture or German agriculture, French agriculture, Spanish agriculture, anywhere, you'd end up with a mess because they're not addressing the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is the way in which all governments develop policy. So it doesn't matter whether you look at a democracy, a multi-party democracy, or a dictatorship. They develop policy exactly the same way. That we discovered in 1984. And it is that way in which we develop policy that leads to all policies being unsound and unintended consequences. So what I'm suggesting to the world in my remaining years is, look, this is like having a bicycle. If I was, you had never seen a bicycle, and everybody listening to us had never seen a bicycle, didn't know what it was. If I was describing a bicycle to you, the more I described, the more you'd think I was crazy. This man's a charlatan. Sure. How can this thing on two narrow wheels and the faster you go, the better it balances? No, nonsense. But if I had a bicycle and you were with me, probably in 15 minutes you'd be riding it. It's very easy. And it's the same with what I'm talking about now. The more I explain it, the more confused people will get. The more I explain it to you, probably the more confused you'll get. If we just did it together, as we were doing in the 80s with those people looking at their own policies, etc., you'd get it immediately. Unless you were very senior in an institution and your ego was blocking your learning and anger. And if that was there, you'd get it very quickly. So what I'm suggesting to the world is that any government, if the leader of that government will act in a statesmanlike way and just carry on as normal, because no politician should take any risk. Just carry on as normal and let us on the side with the convening power of that leader just have the citizens in that country and the experts in agriculture, which would be a good field to tackle as the first one, develop a policy in a different way, in the interests of citizens and not in the interests of organizations. And you get a completely different result. And then the, the world could observe that, see whether we liked it or not. You, how I know you, because we've done would, that. How would you do that? I mean, if you could say, for example, that um, in our case, the U.S. Department of Agriculture might say, you know what, it's up to you. Let's put, let's put the citizens together and, and come up with a, the right way to manage it that has the effects that we're looking for. Is, is no, you, you couldn't just do it like that. It's not. It's not discussion. as that if if in any government, America would not be a good one to start with. Probably a state would be good better to start with here because okay. this is such an enormous bureaucracy. But if if you got uh, any government, say the government of my own country, if the president of it uh, was just to say, okay, uh, I, I'm prepared to do this, and just announce to the country that agricultural policy is continuing as normal. I'm not taking any risk. But what I'm going to do is to get the Savory Institute, who've been doing this for 50-odd years, uh, to facilitate us as government experts, institutions, and citizens to develop policies in the national interest, not in the interests of a political party, not in the interests of a university, a corporation, a farmer's organization, or any other organization. Because when you look at how policy is developed today, if you were the head of the government, what you would be doing is getting relative people together. 
you'd be getting the experts in agriculture together. You'd have the pressure groups, the corporations, the universities, the farming organizations. Now, every single thing I've mentioned is an organization. You wouldn't invite any private citizen. Well, I, I'm fascinated by this. Now, let me ask you, though, give me an example of what an outcome might look like. I mean, ideally, just, you know, come up with a, a, a circumstance and say it's, yeah, it's, we've, we've it done this. We've done, yeah, we've done this. And I published it in our third edition of the textbook. I did it with 35 lawmakers in Zimbabwe, 35 members of parliament, two different parties violently opposed to each other. They were killing each other. Sure. made Republicans and Democrats look like kids playing in yeah. the sandpit. Right? Now, our staff appealed to me not to touch agriculture or land because it's such a hot issue. I said, don't worry about what I'm going to do. And when I got them together, they were in two posing groups, two sides of the room, anger in the room, hostility. And so I didn't talk about agriculture. What I did was I just asked them, did they know how governments develop policy? And they had never thought about that. So we discussed how all governments develop policy. I learned this when I was president of a political party and leading the opposition to parliament. That's when it dawned on me, oh my God, this is how governments develop policy. They all do. All right, so we discussed that. And I said, now, look, there's a different way of doing it that we started to develop in this country. Would you like to have a go at that? And I said, now, the first thing we need is um, that policy is always developed to meet a need, a desire, or to solve a problem. And right. you cannot reduce the complexity of society, economy, and nature to a need, a desire, or a problem. That will fail. I can promise you it'll fail. It's been failing for thousands of years. You can get some temporary short-term successes, that's all. Uh, so I said, we're not going to do that. What we need is a national holistic context. We need to know how every citizen in the country wants their life to be and then tie that to the life-supporting environment and their behavior. And when we've got that holistic context, a new concept that's not in any religion, branch of science, philosophy, when we've got that, now we can use that and develop policy in that context. Whereas, the, And the reason will be the same, but the context will now be different. So with that, what we did was develop a national description of how we believed as a group of citizens, professional people, etc., all citizens want their lives to be more prosperity, more health, clean, nutritious food, clean water, etc., etc., running rivers, blah, blah, blah. So we did that. And at the end of that, um, Everybody was in total agreement, and the whole hostility dropped. Suddenly now, instead of two political parties, I just had 35 people trying to solve the problem. And I said, now let's look at agriculture and land, the most contentious issue. And by the end of that workshop that I ran with them, we had the nucleus of a policy the world dreams of. There would be no more third-party endorsements, There'd be no such thing as regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, no need for it, because all food would be healthy, nutritious, growing on regenerating soil, regenerating rivers, etc. You know, and every, every bit of knowledge we needed was in the room. It's not a lack of knowledge problem. It's not a science problem. It's a management problem the way in which governments develop policy. Well, one way that I've seen policy developed can start with a, a, a farmer or a rancher has an idea, goes to his association that represents cattle or pigs or corn or something, gets a resolution passed, and they take it to their congressman, and if the congressman is in a key committee assignment, introduces a bill, and it gets voted on. And and that's how agriculture policy can be at the grassroots. It also means that sometimes large corporations are able to go directly into a congressional committee and say, I, I want to have a bill introduced. So it happens from, from those levels. But that's where the seeds usually start 
in agriculture that I'm familiar with. Yeah, but do you see what they did? There's somebody went to the congressman uh, with needing to meet a need, a desire, or to solve a problem. You right. cannot reduce the complexity of American society, the American economy, and the mind-boggling complexity of America's land, lakes, and water to meeting a need, a desire, or solving a problem. That's that's going to fail. I'll promise you. I'll stake my life on it. I guarantee you that'll fail. No. That's why policies do fail, and we keep changing them. So to make a change, I mean, you're making a really good case, really good point, that it takes a, a different approach to policy to bring about change. So let me just ask you about something that's going around now. People are are talking about how there's only, like, what, 60 seasons of agriculture left. I'm, I'm not sure where that ever came from, but there's... There seems to be people, you know, chattering about that sort of thing that we're we've got 60 seasons left in us. Uh, you you must hear those things. And and uh, how, do you, how do you respond to the, how those kind of those kind of things get floated and become part of the conversation and, and impacting policy, too? Yeah, I don't respond because they're nonsense. I don't respond to carbon training. It's a bloody racket. The whole thing. It's obviously unsound. Um all of these uh, policies I'm saying to you are unsound. They will lead yeah. to unintended consequences. And so the alarmism is understandable. Why people are trying to uh, alarm everyone and uh, Gretchen, uh, whatever her name was, the young uh, Swede trying to uh, shock people into action. And there's going to be more of that. There's going to be more and more violence. There's going to be more and more discontent with government, whatever party's in power. There's going to be more and more immigration to the United States and to Europe. All of this is policy. I mean, you look at the massive immigration into the United States and how much the drug cartels are involved. What about the policy in America, the war on drugs? When mm -hmm. America developed a war on drugs, it increased drug use, as I understand it, and it spread the violence across our border. Then it spread the violence across to North Africa and into illegal drug sales there. You look at other countries where they've legalized drugs and they don't have the same problem at all. Uh, so, so yes, these things come back to haunt us. And you look at the amount of bad governance that people are running away from. But then you look at the policies of USAID. It's creating that. The first thing I would do as a leader of that organization is to stand up and say to the public, announce it publicly, yes, our ranches are deteriorating. Yes, desertification is occurring on our ranches. You are right. The environmental organization is right. Our critics are right. Now, let me draw your attention. I notice your national parks are deteriorating. I notice your research plots are deteriorating. I notice every bit of land you're managing, whether you're a government agency, a university, an environmental organization, in these same environments is also deteriorating. We need to get together and work together. And if a branch leader emerged like that, the whole situation in the West could change. But no leader is emerging. Have you seen those people? I've spoken like that endlessly. But what happens is, the, you know, I said we manage three things. You manage your life. Every person manages their life, their family. A small community, maybe a small business, small group of people. They manage humans. If we go to scale, we manage through an institution, an organization. Sure. I cannot make a pencil. Most people listening to us can't. Why? Because they're made by a corporation today. Everything at scale is made by an institution of some sort. So that's the first thing we manage, institution. Now, the first thing that institution does, or the farmer does, or the person does, they've got to finance themselves. If you go broke, you're out of the business. If the organization goes broke, it's out of the business. So whether you're a political party, an environmental organization, Cattlemen's organization, I don't give a damn. You are managing an institution, and its first duty is to keep itself in business. 
to manage the economy. That's the second thing we manage, economy. Now you manage the environment or nature to produce everything we produce, from bombs, cars, buildings, to meat, milk, cheese. All right, so when you look at those, managing those three things, everything at scale, like your theoretical farmer or rancher that you spoke to, he can only do the best he can. And if we were working with him, it would be a tremendous improvement. Uh, if you read a paper by Ohio State University on the early adopters who came to me for training right across the United States, they averaged 300% more profit. Mm -hmm. And biodiversity increased, recorded on all but one property in the first year. Yeah, that's a published paper. Now, that, that could be repeated. That rancher could begin to improve his or her situation right away. But at the end of the day, they're crushed because global finance is driving environmental destruction. So at the end of the day, the only way we're going to solve the problem is through the way policies are developed in governments. Well, I want because to... we've got to solve it at scale. You, you've given you've given me a, a lot to think about. I, I want to start kind of wrapping up because I'm cognizant I'm taking a lot of your time here too with this conversation. But I think that you have Savory Institute hubs that they have somebody that's from what I've seen doing a really good job. They're not interfered with by the government. They're in their cases, it's not just the policy that's imposed upon them on their farm. They can go ahead and do their farm and do it the way they think is right. And then they can influence others that can do what seems to be the right approach on their farm. And that could include, you know, grazing systems and, and so forth. But the government in those particular cases don't necessarily interfere one way or the other. They're not getting a subsidy. They're not getting regulated. Uh, you know, they're just doing the right thing. And for some, isn't isn't that enough that they can do the right thing or influence somebody else to do the right thing, even if they don't have the ability to get engaged or the time to get engaged in national or state policies? You know, what you're saying is fine. Yes, we've got hubs all around the world. We're focusing as a matter of strategy on the grasslands of the world because at the moment, not a single government in the world is even talking about the cause of climate change. So there's no hope of, of getting anything done. Now, if the first government begins to actually deal with the cause of it, which is incredibly harmonious and easy to do, all right, like riding a bicycle, when they do that, the first place that globally we will get the highest return on endeavor to, to really begin to tackle this at the scale we need to is the grasslands of the world, not the forests. Not the trees, it's the grasslands of the world, because these are the areas that are desertifying. You see, climate change is biodiversity loss leading to desertification over two-thirds of the world, not where it's humid, but where it's seasonal in rainfall, and megafires that are fueling climate change along with fossil fuels. And now they're feeding on each other. Now, the only place you can break that cycle is not at the atmospheric level, as they're trying to do. You can't break it by stopping fossil fuel use alone. It's not going to do it. Where we can break the cycle is doing that, if need be, but at the biodiversity loss desertification level. There we could break the cycle. Now, if we do that, the place where there will be the biggest return is these grasslands of the world. So we've got about 50 Savory Institute hubs, or these are independent hubs there in our network around the world, and that's why we focus on that. Now, these people, you're right, they're getting some amazing results, wonderful results. And yes, no government interferes with them. I didn't say that. I said that governments, through financial, global finance, is driving environmental destruction. In other words, the, the farmers, even though our best people, and, and the places I'm personally involved in and have been for years where we're getting mind-blowing results. We know that it's short-term and temporary because we've got a tsunami coming down on us. So it, we're all in this boat together and individuals, as I said in that COP26 talk, cannot solve it because the, 
government policy level is the only place we can begin to solve the problem. But let me ask you, though, if we start with grasslands and your hubs are working in some farms and ranches all over all over the world, can you can you consider I think of grasslands, I think of large ranges sometime and uh, forest lands, public lands and so forth. But it could it also be like a, you know, like a small farm that has an area that shouldn't be cropped, that there's a certain part of that farmland that might only be 20, 30 acres or 40 acres of actual pasture that can be taken care of better. I mean, is it is it something you have to be looking at this in scale or is grasslands everywhere that they could take that philosophy and approach? Roger, it's universal. Reductionist management is from every family, every farm, every environment in the world, the oceans, the fisheries, everywhere. Reductionist management and reductionist policy development is totally universal. You cannot get away from it anywhere. Now, you can replace it with managing holistically, equally universal. So you, there's nothing to stop you managing holistically or any single person engaged in a job in town. Mm-hmm. All it is is about managing your life, your economy, and your life-supporting environment, mm-hmm. and managing them together and making decisions in your own enlightened self-interest. That's what it's about. You know, I think that's that's a tremendous message, and we should wrap up close to that message. And if somebody is... So if somebody wants to find out more information on what you've done, would you? where would you ask them to go look? Uh, where would the best, go to the Savory Institute website, get onto them. Uh, you can get onto my uh, social networking, which is pathetic. I'm too old for that stuff. But I am on LinkedIn and Facebook and, and go into X, as they call it now. Um, we're, there, you know, you're there, you're there. But the mm-hmm. best place is go to Savory Institute. I, I'm, now, uh, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm approaching ninety now, and getting old. Younger people, much more capable than me, are taking over. Now, the final thing I wanted to ask you: suppose that you're talking to a person. We've got somebody listening to this podcast, and you would like them to do something after they pause to listen to us have this conversation and if you could cause an individual to to do something and what would that be it would depend entirely on the individual's commitment age um i've often been asked uh, by many many people how i've survived over 50 years of abuse, ridicule, governments trying to crush me, universities trying to crush me, and never stop letting go. How have I done that? And uh, and I've said, having had a lot of time to think about that, I put it down to one word, and that is care. If you care enough about your family, if you care enough about your nation, you'll do whatever you have to do. So if that one person cares enough and they're committed enough, just start by reading, studying, getting on to me, contact me, contact Savory Institute, and just see where you can get involved. Alan, we're fortunate that you've cared enough, not only about your family and about your country, about an individual operation, but you cared about the world, and you are spreading that. And And I'm sure that in the course of a conversation like today, we're reaching some folks that they say, you know what, I care too. And I'm sure you'll have find some to get back to the Savory Institute and and like me appreciate your leadership, your good work. Keep caring. We need you, Alan. Well, thank you. And, and I would just say on that, if you think about it, all right, uh, Savory Institute's under a very good leadership. Daniela Hall's the CEO and her team. I'm amazed at how well they're doing. But if you think about it, and I, I think I'm fair in saying this, it's the only organization I know of in the world that is trying to get everybody together and not promoting, here's a silver bullet. We're promoting no solution. We're promoting a way to solve it. But when I look at all the other good organizations, wonderful people, good friends of mine or in organizations, they're all promoting this agricultural production, that agricultural production, or this energy source, or promoting, and they all paddling their own canoes all financing their own organizations, competing for funds, egos, institutional egos, all this stuff. 
and we've got the Savory Institute trying to say, no, we're all in this boat together. There's a way to solve this. Well, I appreciate your putting it in those terms. And I know that we've got some people that are really pleased that they've had a chance to hear from you directly. And I hope we can have a conversation like this again. So, Alan Savory, thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate what you're doing. Everybody helps. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you